Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Redmond, a clinical psychologist, and you're listening to the When Work Hurts podcast. On this show, I want to explore the stories behind the statistics of the mental health crisis facing healthcare professionals today, and to provide hope for a way out through compassion, connection, and creativity. Join me as I talk to inspiring clinicians and thought leaders in healthcare about their unique insights and learn how we can support ourselves and each other when work hurts. The ways in which we relate to work are often shaped by our training experiences, and this is particularly true in medical education. My guest this week is Dr. Louise Uni, clinical reader in medical education at Queen Mary University of London. In this episode, she tells me about how she draws on the concepts of flourishing and creative inquiry with medical students. We began by discussing some of the challenges of medical training. I have my own experiences from about quite a long time ago. And then the students that I meet and the stories that they tell me as part of within the education setting, not within the pastoral setting. So it's an incredibly competitive process to get in and the com- competition remains. I was just chatting to a student today, actually, to s- saying that actually there's a few reasons why I think it's harder today than it was when I went through, because the students are ranked. So for all their different exams that they take, they get a little score, a number score. And so through the whole of those five years, it makes you incredibly competitive. And those scores matter because it defines whether you get close to your first choice of where you'll work in the end. So that sets up people somewhat potentially against each other because anyone getting a better grade than you changes, changed your ranking. There's a lot of pressure to learn a lot of facts and develop a lot of skills. There's a lot of talk about becoming competent in in lots of things. And, you know, there's a heavy, there's a heavy big timetable. I think uh, some of the stuff students face as well is often as, you know, quite young people coming in they start to meet people who are suffering at quite a young age and that's something that they may not be as well prepared for as as they might because that hasn't traditionally been a focus of medical education. The focus has traditionally been about developing future people to diagnose and treat disease and the, the, the sort of aspect of walking alongside people who are suffering is less well, that whole sort of human dimension is less well explored, articulated, developed. I mean, sorry, just to add to that, I suppose what we do know is that there is, you know, there has been documented even before COVID, a burnout epidemic and, you know, sort of stress and rise in mental health challenges across both students and clinicians. And so in 2019, the BMA, the the British Medical Association, the General Medical Council and Health Education England all did wide ranging surveys and into the mental health of students and clinicians and found, again, you know, confirmed these findings that are concerning. And... It's interesting as well because I, I guess you're, you're you're working in the undergraduate part of training because I guess one of the things that always strikes me is that training just goes on forever and these kind of relentless pressures you know can can be for I don't know it seems like decades long that that people can be in this the the pressures and and the exams and the it's kind of a move it seems like a moving target all the time yeah there's there's sort of exams once you qualify there are further exams I mean then you're obviously being paid and you're working and studying for exams 
But I don't even know if that's the hardest part of it, really. I think the sort of on, you know, the, the pressures that we're facing in the NHS and the time pressures and the, the, the pressures of people's needs uh, and the resources mismatch, possibly as a, in an ongoing basis, is maybe even more challenging in a way. And, and do you think that comes as a shock to people when you, when you see people at the beginning of their career as they get to grips with the reality of what it is like to be a doctor compared to you know what they'd hoped what they would thought it might I think be like. it is a shock I think it's hard I was just speaking to someone who actually works with so for, um, a fourth year medical student who works with students wanting to apply so uh, with when the context of widening participation wanting to apply to medical school and just sort of saying how the the A-level students sort of see it as this big rosy bubble but but that it isn't quite you know when you come into medical education I think you know they can obviously see and hear what's happening in the NHS so I think but I think it's only as you get closer to the end that it really starts to hit home probably and I say that from reading some of the student fifth year student work around that. So Louise I know you've, you've got a, bit, a special interest in um, the field of what's called creative inquiry and, and human flourishing and I'd love to first of all maybe hear about how that came about for you. Yeah so when I started I sort of went through medical school wanting to learn the facts and the skills and thought being a good doctor was knowing how to diagnose disease and it really wasn't until I hit general practice and started sort of I suppose to be on a more level playing field with patients and really started to listen to patients and you know they could come back if if things weren't sort of getting better or resolved and so I started encountering people suffering in all kinds of different ways and a lot of conversations and a lot of what happened in the consultations wasn't necessarily about a diagnosis or treatment there was some of that but that was only part of it people suffer in all kinds of different ways what's happening to them socially what's happening emotionally existentially as well as what's happening to them physically and these are all intertwined and so trying to work out what best to do in the moment with the patient sat in front of you became like a really challenging puzzle I suppose it's maybe about sort of being holistic or having wisdom and you know it went way beyond it felt like my training and I felt like I didn't necessarily have that way to kind of traverse from my own inner world to the other person's I was like having to find language and ways for example if you meet someone with depression for the first time you know we're trained to find out how are you eating how are you sleeping have you thought about harming yourself and things like that which are all around is it a diagnosis of depression and how bad is it but actually, there's all the stuff around, you know, what's happened to you, what's been going on, what the, the whole sort of story behind. And often I find myself saying, you know, like maybe you're having a normal response to some difficult things that are happening right now. So we have those kinds of conversations. But that's all outside of my training. Anyway, as I was sort of discovering all this and the puzzle and the complexity of that, I felt like we needed to do something different in medical education. I became a, a lecturer at the same time as I qualified as a GP and felt like we need to create a different space, a different way of kind of engaging with what I now call the human dimension. And I haven't found any better ways, having been at it for about 20 years, than using the arts. So creative inquiry, what I mean by creative inquiry is exploring your lived experience through the arts, or it can be exploring the patient's lived experience as you perceive it through the arts. And so I started running both student-selected small groups with like groups of 12 students, working with arts therapists and arts for health consultants. And I still run that group. I've got two sort of set up for this coming academic year, like nearly 20 years down the line, but also introduced it across a whole curriculum, like in their GP placement. So rather than just writing a reflective essay about Mr. S who's got diabetes and takes these medications, we invited them to 
engage in some creative inquiry if they wanted to as an alternative choice. And then the students kind of stretched that space. Like we had a few poems and a few narratives of first year and then I fed that back and explained it a bit more. And, and gradually they were doing sculptures and music and, and, and actually as an educator, I was learning so much both about them and the patients. So yeah, that was a kind of starting journey. And tell us more about what creative inquiry means to you. You said it's about kind of exploring experience. And why is it, do you think that the creative part of that is so useful? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know if Freud actually said it, but it's attributed to him that he said, wherever I go, a poet has been there before me. There's something about the creative process that is like a lightning rod into our stories, our narratives, our lived experience. Lived experience actually doesn't easily find itself necessarily on a written page of prose. But actually, when we start engaging with metaphor, symbol, different languages, we can engage with some of the feelings that we felt in those moments. We can engage, we can represent things without fully nailing the colours to the mast, if you like. So it actually gives us more languages to work with. So it's like becoming multilingual in reflecting on our experiences. So we have got a bit of a problem with students feeling like there's a tick box, reflective culture, where you just have to write something reflective and endless reflections. But actually to be reflective, first of all, there needs to be a safe space and we need to recognise that it's a vulnerable thing to reflect. But if you create a safe space and then opening that door to creativity and particularly with that group of first year students where they were kind of new, it gave them a choice to, so this was from my doctoral research, to find their voice, to actually, the student voice came out in a different way. I usually have pictures to show, like to explain what I, I mean a bit better, but there's one example of a student who did an image of a slumping lady and a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel and she captured her patient's narrative around depression. But she also talked about using the style of Vincent van Gogh, which was her favourite artist, and she talked about the heavy colours, which represented how she felt after you know close to an hour of listening to someone who'd had a traumatic and difficult life. And she even wrote some of her own experiences from her own family in the past so so you had both the patient voice coming through and the student voice in a way that you wouldn't in general get in a standard written reflection on having met a patient and that's just one tiny example you know so many different examples captured sort of micro moments that would otherwise probably not have been spoken about maybe to their flatmate but not captured in a way that you know I'm still talking about and showing them 10 years down the line for example and we're still doing new ones all the time as well but some of those some of those old ones are really profound. And we'll put a link in the show notes to your website because you've got a collection of, of some of those images there. And some of them, well, I think all of them are, are really moving and you have that sense of just human uniqueness and diversity that, as you say, you can really tap into. So, Louise, what, what if a, a student was kind of to come along to one of your courses, what what could they expect? What would happen? What goes on? So there's two different um, dimensions. There's, there's this small student-selected component, and that's up to about 12 students. And that was quite an intense, that's like a two-week block where I'll introduce them to creative inquiry. I'll introduce them to thinking about clinical practice. But I'll also co-work with different arts for health consultants. So when they come in, so we might have a creative writing session or a music therapy session. And the, the model tends to be similar for these where they hear about or they witness what patients have written, for example, in creative writing or what the, the songs that they've written in palliative care. 
and then they hear about the process how how you know the the facilitator who holds those spaces with patients talk about how they do that and then they have a go they try it themselves and and then they share the as much as they want to of what they've actually created and that's often where the really interesting stuff happens of where they start to maybe have new ideas, see things in new ways, you know, new horizons kind of open for them as they hear what other people say and make their own explorations. We try to, within that space, always have a time where they actually get into some kind of creative inquiry process. And, and one of, that's one of the bits that I love, where a silence descends over the, the group and uh, they're creating or making something and they're all in their own they just sort of go into flow i suppose and they're they're creating and making and then we bring it back together and then and then share in the large group so that's the kind of model for the more intense two-week process in the other ways we've introduced it is across the whole curriculum so for example in the gp placement like in our gp our year three gp placement rather instead of telling them to teaching them on compassion which I don't think is that easy a thing to do. We, we engage a sort of a head, hand and heart model that William Osler spoke about. And that's, we invite them to think about what they've seen in terms of compassion and practice. So they're thinking about their lived experience of their own or what they've seen other people do. We invite them to investigate the literature that's the head stuff. But also, we don't force it, but they can do uh, engaging creative inquiry as well. And this is as a group. And then they present that to their GP tutors. So it's sort of coming from the students. And I hope that it, you know, in that way is more transformative. And from what we've, one of my students did research into this and found that even the GPs were being changed and, and uh, learning from what the students were bringing. So it's, so it's quite a nice model. So in students, you know, we've had students do... Um, a musical, for example, where they're, where they're acting. There's a few musicals, actually, as well as, you know, poetry or group images to help explore what it actually, what, you know, what compassion might actually mean. And we always put written reflection alongside any of the creative stuff that's done so that, that it's always bilingual. The work is always bilingual, if you like. It's, it's always, you know, if it's a piece of music, there'll be a written piece of reflection alongside it. Um, so that's how it tends to work. And that sounds like a really fascinating process of, of kind of collective creativity must be quite an experience for, for students. Yeah, so I have a student, so and then students want, you know, join me to, to take things further. And so I have a student who experienced that last year and this year wants to actually find ways to help students engage with it better because he facilitated the students in his group having worked with me previously. And so he's going to do like an elective time with me, seeing how he can enable more students that haven't really heard of this and don't really know about it you know it's still not that well known about across the medical school and so he's going to find ways and, and I love co-creating with the students in that way because he'll understand their perspective great you know better than I will and then I can bring the other dimension and I imagine that probably much like psychologists that that medical trainees there's a lot of perfectionism around how, how do you manage that so that's a really yeah no that's and and so the start of that um two-week course it's one of the most important things I try to get across about engaging in process rather than product because that is a massive issue of wanting not wanting to make a piece of something that looks terrible but that obviously stops you thinking if you're thinking about that so one of the images that I show people when I talk about what creative inquiry is by is by a student I think in 2006 and she 
was an artist when she joined us. And she's got a picture of a girl, herself actually, with her hair covering her face. And what she wrote was, when I picked up, she hadn't tried creative writing before and found it transformative. So she said, when I picked up the pen and started writing, my face is emerging three-dimensional from the page. So you can't see it, her hair's covering her, but then you see this kind of face emerging from the page uh, because you know to illustrate how she was connecting with herself and coming to understand herself as she wrote. And the interesting thing about that image is that she was a very good artist, but actually creative writing was something she'd never tried. It was the medium that she wasn't necessarily so exercised in, that she wasn't so polished in where she actually had the greater kind of personal journey. And so I try to use that to explain to people, you know, this is, we are, you know, you are going to be future doctors and clinicians. So this is about finding ways to help you to explore that. And so it doesn't need to be your best, most beautiful piece. I often use beautiful images when I'm showing it. And I have to explain that, that you don't have to be able to create this kind of imagery. It's just that it's nicer to look at in a presentation. But that's not the point, really. I saw you speak at a conference, um, it was just before COVID, so it was the beginning of 2020, and you did a, a lovely exercise with the group, which I've borrowed in different places, where you had a bunch of kind of postcards with different kind of images, you know, some quite abstract, some, um, and kind of asking the group just to pick one that resonated with them in some way, and then have a, a, a small discussion with, you know, in pairs or, or threes. And that was a, a really lovely exercise. And, and when I've used that, it's been really helpful because I think it enables people to access something, but in a really safe way because they can choose what they're responding to, you know, choose how much they share or don't share. But, you know, there's something about just accessing the symbolic and the unconscious in a way that can, as you said, kind of like get to something much more quickly than if you had a verbal, you know, discuss. And that's been people's, I've done that exercise lots of times. I really love it. And, you know, often use it for people to just explore their lived experience, something that resonates from their lived experience. And I always do the bound, you know, like set the boundaries because sometimes something really powerful actually emerges. And so I invite, you know, I say they can talk about the process rather than the actual card if it's too personal. And, you know, at times when people feel safe, it can be very deeply meaningful. But I think, and sometimes people panic about which card to choose. But what we've discovered is the more relaxed you are, the easier easier it is and actually because we're meaning making creatures probably we could make something out of any of the cards actually in the end but yes I, I use that that's I often use that as a first exercise because creative inquiry can seem frightening to people and and you know like actually putting pen to paper can feel challenging whereas picking a card is much easier and in fact I did a workshop back in 2006 for GPs and one of the things that came out they all knew each other very well they were a trainer group one of the things that came out was quite a number of them and they probably wouldn't have said this if they didn't feel as safe as they did with each other you know had been told as a child that they were they were not good they were terrible at drawing and that sort of thing so a whole, we had a whole day of creative inquiry and the sort of thought filled some of them with dread but you know it was good to just get that out there at the start and so it's interesting we you know we have to if you're using creative inquiry processes we do need to 
be aware of the challenges in, in making it work. And so I suppose I have a sort of model in my mind which involves things like, so if I'm doing fac- you know training for people who want to do this work, it's around having a, a muse, getting involved yourself, setting up the boundaries and the psychological safety, using a simple kind of exercise first before you go into something else. And, you know, those sorts of things to enable and, and also to think about who we are as facilitating and how we're, you know, managing this sort of organic space and thinking about holding transformative spaces and reading the people in the group, I think. So there's, uh, Chris Seeley has talked about the artist of the invisible when she thinks about transformative spaces. So I think that's what it is. If you're holding those spaces, you are actually doing your own artistry in that way. You know, there is an artistry to holding that space. And you use the word vulnerable as well. And and that was my sense too, kind of a window to the soul and, and how it might feel for for students to be accessing that that vulnerability in the setting of of medical training and I suppose I I wonder partly whether using the creative process and um, those different mediums allows people to access that vulnerability in a kind of oblique way kind of saying it but not saying it which creates a sense of safety but are there also things that that you've needed to establish in order to allow people to engage in the process yes i'm <laughs> making yeah lots of different things to say so one of the things i've written a paper on vulnerable leadership as a as important if you're going to facilitate these kinds of groups these groups became become a really like transformative spaces so rather than being like informational like learning it, it's actually a transformative so people start exploring their values their beliefs they start exploring and realizing that they see the world differently to someone else so we can start thinking about becoming reflexive not just reflecting but actually thinking about the lenses that we are wearing when we meet our patients so so these transformative spaces they need proper holding because people do the students end up sharing more and more. In fact, at the start of a couple of examples, like from the start of sessions, and students can feel nervous. One of the students, before she shared some kind of construction of just materials that we'd left, it's hard for me to talk about this because you can't create without putting something of yourself in it. And so because students are, for example, in that course, whenever they're creating, they're putting something of themselves in it. So they're revealing a bit more of themselves than they would in most other contexts. So... Another student talked about, she heard someone sharing a poem that they'd written. She'd missed the morning, so I'd done lots of stuff about making it safe and talked about the process and it's not about the product and all these things. And she came in in the afternoon and heard someone reading a poem that they'd written and thought, there's no way I'm going to read a poem amongst my medical colleagues. That's just not happening. And the reason I know that is because the second week she had actually written her poem and she was then reading it and sharing it. And that's what she told us, you know, about that. So there is quite a lot of work to be done to make that space safe. And I think the vulnerable, the vulnerable leadership idea is about giving enough of ourselves when we're facilitating those spaces to make it safe to share stuff. It's not about us, it's about us making space for others. So, for example, I, at times, not usually at the start, but some, you know, I might mention my previous experience of cancer, for example, or I might talk about challenges that I faced in practice and bring stories from clinical practice into the, into the room. Basically, it's around knowing that we're all human and I often say we're all a bit broken, humans are all a bit broken. And that's that's the starting point. And from there, we can then begin to share and explore. And I think vulnerability, I think, I mean, maybe we'll touch on that again, but it feels to me like it's it's not something, it's not where we want to be, but it actually is very powerful in lots of ways. 
And how is that received in the context of medical training? Has it been something that you've has been an easy sell, or, or has it been? <laughs> it's been a bit of a lonely journey. Uh, I think it's easy to misunderstand it. You know, people might think or have. So the students have understood it. The students who have engaged have understood it. So it's been quite a grassroots thing. I think sometimes it's been misunderstood as like, oh, this is just the same as maybe going to the cinema in the evening. It's something nice and relaxing that you can do to it. But actually, for me, I started it. For me, it's about ways of knowing and practitioner ways of knowing and what we know and what we bring, who am I and what I bring to my encounter with patients. So it's it's sort of, for me, is a fundamental part of scholarship, but it's quite difficult to articulate and it's quite difficult to get that into the medical journals um, I have written a few book chapters and this and that but it so no it's been it's been lonely and challenging but I think the COVID pandemic has really changed it feels like there's I don't know if it's just that but there's feels like there's been a sea change and there is much more openness it feels like now I mean in the past I wouldn't even talk about well-being or flourishing it was all focused on how we would be with patients even the students wouldn't I don't think would really accept it but now out and out I can talk about flourishing as well so I do a session on flourishing even though most of it has been focused on what the patients bring and and do and you know their their creative stuff in this small group one that I do then I talk about the student flourishing and they they what's wonderful is they sort of explore the ideas I give them they create around it and give things back to me so we come to understand the feel better like one of the students said after hearing about resilience and flourishing I've done a lot of un trying to move beyond resilience and one of them said oh I think flourishing is a kinder way to grow (laughs) and I guess there's something about that idea of flourishing really struck me because I guess we hear a lot of stories and I I suppose I hear that a lot in in my work I I work with you know do some work with trainees particularly around um, exam support or, or therapy stuff and the stories that I hear I guess because I'm positioned in a particular way are, are about how people can just survive or maybe not you know don't feel like they can survive anymore and so it's really refreshing to hear about flourishing and and I guess also at such an early stage in career development that people are kind of hearing some of this stuff right at the start so that they can carry it with them. But I wonder, how, how do you define flourishing? Uh, that's a great question. And so, I mean, flourishing isn't much in medical education yet. I think it's sort of, it's emerged because I've been watching in these groups that I was running, I was, where I was trying to humanise the patient and then realised that students were being humanised and they would say things like, I've learnt more about myself in these last two weeks than I have in my whole 21 years, or I can speak without censoring what I'm saying, or aren't we an amazing group of students? You know, so those sorts of things. And it's like, oh, wow, something's going on here, and sort of then starting to think about this and the concept of flourishing. So for the last five years, I've been thinking, exploring that. And externally, I think I realise now from the literature that flourishing is a sort of growing concept that people are talking about more, both in research and policy. But it's not really fully sort of conceptualised and defined yet. So in a way, I've kind of got in there early. There are all sorts of flourishing models that people are bringing out. And from reading a paper by Sarah Willen, she was talking about how they all have relationship and meaning making in them as part of the models as important things and they happen to be in my model as well so I've developed a sort of a five block model if you like but the one thing I'd say that I have different I can tell you about all of those if you want but the one thing that I have that's perhaps different is I've got keeping it real or shadow work in it which I think others don't so sometimes so flourishing can be thought of as you know from Aristotle's eudaimonia so with very very deep and long roots around 
meaningful and purposeful life as opposed to maybe the hedonia of doing things that give you pleasure just in the moment. So around meaningful, meaning and purpose. But often it's also thought of as everything being wonderful and excellent. And, and, and actually, in my mind, for me, it's more about being human. And if we can be truer to what we are as human beings, which is a bit broken, then there's space for us to kind of breathe and flourish. So I've got a keeping it real shadow work part, which I don't see in any of the other models. And that is, and that's from observing the students. I can tell a little story about it, but Jung talks about shadow work. And if we turn away from our shadow, it kind of gets bigger. And it's the stuff I use that to talk about the stuff that we don't like to look at in ourselves or in our situations. And so, for example, one of our students in a session drew this little tiny, tiny black little fish down in a corner of, a, of an image and then loads and loads of brightly coloured fish everywhere. And she described that little tiny black fish as herself and all the others were those really bright and colourful medical students. And there's a lot of imposter syndrome and feeling of compared to all the others who... Someone else did a, a photo with chess pieces and a little tiny grape and she said, I, I felt like a grape amongst chess pieces, all the, chess, all the medical students honed and ready for battle. But actually at the end of this course, so this is this two weeks creative arts course, I feel more like a grape among grapes because she'd heard what the other students were thinking and saying and realised that she wasn't so different to anyone else. So there's that sense of rehumanizing as we do the keeping it real shadow work and share some of those bits. We rehumanize ourselves and others. So yeah, so there's so I've got five things within that flourishing which I I can share or don't need mm. to. Yes, please. So the so the first one it's a sort of moving away from resilience and this idea that our inner life is something that can bounce back you know whatever traumas we go through we bounce back to the same shape or spring back uh, and that idea from you know metals that where you put more pressure on until they break and that's how you measure how resilient they are you know in the material science and I don't feel like that's a good picture for our inner life so I often start with that flourishing is ecological so you know metaphorically we think of I've got a tree a big birch tree in my garden and I look at that in season and out of season and I think of our inner lives more as something that might have seasons so we might be going through winter, but there will be a spring coming. It allows us to think about the soil that we've grown on. We know, for example, adverse childhood experiences make a big difference to people's lives. You know, so we're not comparing one person with another. You know, the brief resilience scores where it sort of says I can bounce back from absolutely anything from naught to five. These things are being given to medical students to look at. And I find them problematic because they don't take into account where we've come from and what we've been through. So, so we can think about the soil. We can think about the weather that's going on for us right now. Like maybe, maybe I am feeling downhearted, but you know, I'm actually facing a bit of a storm right now. So it brings in the ecological, and it feels like that's a bit healthier in terms of thinking of our inner life as a metaphor. Then it's interconnected. So that's the relationship part. It's something that is interconnected. It's not something that I necessarily do on my own. Like, how you know, am I more resilient than the person next door? But actually, I talk to the students about the well-being of what is, rather than the well-being of do something better. So the you know they get told eat well, sleep well, do this, do that, and then you'll be well. But actually, I've seen that when the trust is built between people, maybe through creative inquiry and the vulnerable leadership, they share a bit more. They realise they're not alone. They might talk about the exams that they're worried about, whatever it is. And they actually feel better. You know, there's a sense of feeling better. Even though I haven't, we haven't changed, they haven't had to do something different. So there's something about if you just increase the trust between the connections, I guess it's systems thinking, but if you enhance the connections between or catalyse the question, the, the connections between people, there's a sense of flourishing emerging. 
then there's the meaning making and I've already spoken about Aristotle and I often show that image that I described of the of the girl um, of the woman sort of slumped over in the, the Van Gogh style so there's a sense of the patient voice and the student voice for example that you get this deeper meaning making through through the creative inquiry uh, that leads to flourishing and then there's compassion which can be compassion for self or compassion for others and students students often have that sense that they they can't be compassionate towards themselves and and one of the students did a beautiful image with the faces that that you put on to the world and newspaper hands with zigzag hands with strings kind of holding those faces it's a great image and then she has underneath a kind hand with a ball of wool and just saying we can choose to kind of be kind to ourselves but and and as a result of I think other things going on as well as the course she talked about I can actually make time for my friends. I can actually make time to crochet. I can actually, and I don't have to be the best always. And it is okay to make mistakes and then to come back. And so so there's something around compassion and building that in and how that can lead to flourishing. Again, it's sort of the humanizing. And the final one is the shadow work and keeping it real. It strikes me as, as a, a beautiful model that kind of allows... The individual and the systemic to kind of come together because I, I think there's often a, a tension there where we face the kind of causes of burnout for example are these really big huge problems that we as little people can't fix which can feel like a very hopeless place to be and then on the other hand you might get this kind of resilience move that it's it is the the problem is located within you and you just need to be kind of bouncier which is also very problematic and and I guess I love what you've drawn out there in terms of being able to keep it real and connect with our worlds our people ourselves and our, our humanness kind of holding that all together is really powerful yeah, I think the students, I guess I'm sort of testing it out all the time by sharing it with uh, and, and sort of seeing how it lands, you know, does it land well? Mm-hmm. But it, it does seem actually for students and clinicians to to land and bring a sense of relief somehow, I think. Mm. One of the other things that struck me was that sense of humanising us as, as health professionals. And I think that's one of the things that... I often hear about the people I'm, you know, working in therapy with is that sense of of being stripped of their humanity, either through the ways that systems work in terms of people just feeling like, you know, they're a nameless rotor filling function, or just you know not having basic human needs met in terms of being able to go to the toilet or get food. <laughs> I remember um, it. <laughs> But then also the other part of how brutal it can be to continually face suffering, to not be able to meet patients' needs because of whatever lack of resources or and, and to have no recognition of that in the system can, can be, especially over a long time, can, can be a really dehumanising experience. And it's often, I think creativity can be a really important way back to that I sort of I think about my own practice and I am now working not many sessions as, as a GP but and I don't run to time <laughs> but you know the system does push us to practice in a certain way but if we I, I sometimes say to the students only dead fish go with the flow <laughs> if we don't go with the flow and actually I think we forget that 
bringing ourselves actually and deep listening. We can't solve all of our patients' problems, but we can hear them and we can be present and we can witness them. We can also do some stuff. That's great when we can do stuff, but some of the time we can't. And I think we forget or, you know, because it's so trained out of us and we're so blinkered, we forget that actually the power of being there and being present. And I, I guess I'm increasingly interested in, in trauma and trauma-informed care and people are coming and sharing things with me and that sort of, I, I can't take it away, but deep listening and presence and helping people to make start to make sense of things can be part of a healing journey. And so as we, you know, I, I suppose part of what I love about practice when it happens is when I'm still learning and I'm every person, every patient, every when there's opportunity, and that is hard in the system. I guess I, I, I make a choice to like take a bit of extra time to have those more meaningful conversations. But even if you just have one of those, I think that that can really help you fall back in love with being a clinician and the the privilege of meeting people at a point that is raw and vulnerable and even it really so before my cancer which was in 2014 I felt like I'd learned so much being a GP for about 14 years I'd learned so much from my patients that did help me going through those times you know so we are I suppose I'm saying that because we are human too we're not beyond diseases and illnesses and, and in a sense we're two people on a on a journey trying to do something good in that moment and I'm wondering if that's part of, you, you mentioned about COVID's kind of being part of a, a shift. And I, and I was thinking when you said that, whether a part of that is, is those two kind of coming together, the vulnerability of doctors, nurses, people on the front line, in a way that we, we kind of couldn't ignore anymore. Yeah, there's a great article. And I just love the words I keep kind of quoting, it, but you know, it says COVID grief has cracked us open, you know, the clinicians. And I think there's a truth in that, isn't there? But, you know, not that I want people to be cracked open. So one of the things I'd really like to do in the long term is um, often the human dimension of medicine is called the soft stuff, i.e. the soft, easy kind of just even the language we use uses sort of down regulates the importance of it and how profound it can be in people's lives if we engage with it well. And so I'd, I, I've got an image with two strands of the DNA and one is the um, clinical dimension which is well articulated in medical education but the other is the human dimension and I believe it would be possible I think even Engel who developed the biopsychosocial model in one of his articles kind of saying the human dimension is possible to articulate it might be challenging, it might not fit into our models, but you know, it might be more about making spaces rather than telling people stuff or examining them on stuff. But I think it's possible. And I think it's probably essential, like some of these bigger issues you, that we're struggling with right now in terms of the workforce mm -hmm. and you know, recruitment and retention. I think you know, in all the conversations, there's very little that you hear at the kind of policy level about the human dimension, which is the reason why people leave it's those it's those very human things you know needs that that can't be met and i think we need to keep it real don't we and kind of grapple with those things if anything's going to change yeah i think so i mean there's a lot of talk about you know getting people in you know, like trying to get the doctors to offer person-centered care you know and have that but actually the understanding of that there's a great paper realist research published in december by Artie Bansal and, and team and, and they just showed it isn't enough to in our positivist kind of curriculum where we're teaching knowledge and skills and facts as if forgetting all the intersubjectivity of what happens it isn't enough just to do some communication skills training you actually 
well, what they found from their research was you need space for emotions, you need space for the patient voice, you need space for meaning making if we're going to help doctors in the future be able to do any kind of person-centered care. So there's a lot of talk about person-centered care, but actually, you know, how do you filter down to enable that? And it isn't through just telling doctors to do it. It's, you know, we've got to walk the walk within the education process, I think. So if, if you could kind of wave a magic wand, what, what would you like to see happening in, in our healthcare systems beyond the kind of undergraduate education bit in terms of creative inquiry? and? Wow. So, I mean, also trustee of various of Arts and Health Southwest and I'm co-chair of the um, Royal Society of General Practitioners Arts and Health Group. And I also had a poet and an artist in my surgery for like three years as, as a sort of also something that I really wanted to do for my patients while we had the funding. And it was amazing. It was so wonderful to hear their stories, to see people building friendships, to see there's a lot of loneliness out there. So to help people to come together. And they weren't really talking about their diseases. They were just kind of being rehumanized, I suppose. I haven't thought about it in that way, but they were sharing their stories and their lives through the arts or through poetry and finding new ways and new friends. So I think, I'm not saying that arts kind of solve everything for sure, but I would love there to be um, some kind of arts-based practice in every GP surgery, for example, that we could refer to that they they would access, because so many of the problems we see, you know, a lot of the chronic pain and all sorts of things that we're seeing, a lot of stuff is a result of trauma and pain and other things, and there's no space to give voice to any of that. And in a 10-minute consultation, there isn't any space, so people just bounce around being given drugs, being given this and that. So that might be part of it. Uh, (laughs) I mean, a a proper, obviously we're seeing more impact of, I mean, this is way beyond the scape, but we're seeing more impact from the inequity. And so a proper sort of leveling up because, you know, that starts to impact our patients and the people that we see as they experience more and more challenges. I mean, I suppose that's the sort of fundamental level in a way, a starting point, but then, yeah, and, and there is evidence as well for the sort of arts-based processes. It's just a bit harder to measure and manage in the sort of monetary system that we have, in a way. For, for anybody who might be listening to this and, and be really excited about, you know, the idea of creative inquiry and how those kind of process of creative expression can support us in this work, any thoughts about how people could take some of these ideas and, and put them into action without having access to to one of your wonderful courses, either as individuals or in teams? So some of it, I wonder, it might be the underpinning thinking. So I've got three Vs in terms of the underpinning thinking, which I'll share, and then maybe we can just think about what that might mean in practice. But this is from a book chapter I was writing, and it feels like these three things are really important to us to flourish. One of them is is vulnerability. And so, and and actually, you know, as an individual, being able to recognize that we are vulnerable, then we don't have to fight it at least. And and being able to find spaces where we can be vulnerable is powerful, you know, even if it's one other person where we can kind of be real. There's something about finding our voice, so the uniqueness of what it is that I bring into the world and how I see the world. And for that to be heard as well, again, I think can profoundly lead to flourishing. And the third one is valuing humanity. So that recognition that we are a bit broken and kind of being kind to ourselves in our humanity, uh, rather than judgmental on ourselves or others. So those three things, I think, are kind of core and underpinning to to flourishing in different ways that we might. So as an individual, I think 
or what I've read and heard from the students, you know, that, that, that making space and time to see friends, to value those spaces. So it's not all about either, you know, trying to achieve things or to make money or whatever, that actually you value a space for being. And whether that's crocheting or cooking or baking or, I don't know, cycling or whatever, walking in nature. But so, so to, you have to value that space. One of my students said in her second year at medical school, I stopped painting when I came to medical school. And it's not because I didn't have time. It's because I stopped valuing it in this system. But after the creative arts school, she said, now I'm going to paint anyway for me because I want to. And it's that sort of thing. And she's still painting. <laughs> 10, 20 years down the line. So, you know, but I think, so there's something about creativity, valuing that space, being aware of our vulnerability and trying to find spaces where we can give voice to what it is we see. In teams, I mean, it's interesting, I've been invited into a, a GP practice and that will be a new venture for me. So to work across the team there to think about how we explore um, flourishing within the team. But like, I think... If if we were to think of those those three things again, you know, is this a space where people are able to express their vulnerability without being hammered to actually be real? Is it a space where people can actually give voice to some of the stuff that they see and feel and hear? And are we valuing, you know, our humanity recognizing that we need we need space to be, we need space for breaks, we need we need to support each other. And so building those links between us. And it'd be interesting to see, we're going to do some creative inquiry work, that would be sort of facilitated stuff, and then they'll also do some other stuff. I think it starts with actually recognising that we are a human team and, and, you know, how we find that. In terms of organisations, so I'm a flourishing fellow as well at, the, at Queen Mary University of London, where I'm working. That's a nice It's a lovely title, title isn't it? <laughs> I, I love it, flourishing fellow. And, and part of that, you know, their highest mission is that their students and staff will flourish. And, you know, the question is, and part of their goal is to be, we're in East London, so is to be an inclusive university with widening participation. And, and what does that mean and how does that look as an organisation? I think still those three things, the sort of the valuing humanity, vulnerability and voice sort of impact, but that's, I think, work in progress. That's kind of beyond where I'm, I'm sort of exploring these things. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, Please do share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. I'd love to connect with you, so do come and find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also sign up to my mailing list to keep up to date with future episodes and get useful psychology advice and tips straight to your inbox. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks again, and until next time, take good care.